0: Good afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Halaqi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, Not taking calls, but on Instagram live for the show. Uh, let's get into the books of the week, but before I do, let me make a few announcements. So, first of all, today I did my first book club meeting on Clubhouse, which is on the book of the week that I'll talk about t- tonight Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein. And so, you can join every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, Los Angeles time, for the book club meetings. As I've mentioned on some recent shows, for a few years now, since I've been doing the books of the week, people have actually asked me if we could do something like a book club to make a more interactive conversation or discussion about the books. And I really didn't know the right platform or the way to make that happen. But uh, now with Clubhouse, which is a new app, which at the time being, for the time being, it's only available on, for Apple phones or iPhones or Apple products. But nonetheless, for those of you who do have an Apple product, you can get sign on to Clubhouse. You have to technically get invited, but hopefully one of your friends could get you on there. Uh, and you could join my club Psych Talk with Dr. Farid and then uh, come to the book club meetings and I'll do other question and answers as well. But so thank you to everyone who was there. It was a nice little discussion. It was the first one, so I'll kind of think of ways to make it more interactive, but people did make uh, comments and questions. And so we'll do that every week. And what I will try to do now is put the w- the books a few weeks in advance, because I know it's tough, especially if I announce the book to try to buy the book and then read it uh, by the time the book club's on Monday, that's going to be tough. So I'll try to give some advance notice on the books. So I hope to have you join me in those discussions, because here, usually I'm just giving more of a, a summary or my thoughts on the book. But there, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. So hopefully you'll join me on the Monday, 1 p.m. Los Angeles time on Clubhouse. Also, this Wednesday, I'm very excited that I'll have on the show via telephone Dr. Mark Solms, who is the author of the book of the week from a few weeks ago, The Hidden Spring. He is, uh, I I really love that book. If you've heard me talk about it on that show, I really, really enjoyed his book and was honored and very excited that he uh, agreed to be on the show, so gonna have him on for at least the first half, I believe, of Wednesday's show. Hopefully, you'll tune in this coming Wednesday uh, at 12 noon. But now, with all of that out of the way, let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Atomic Habits: An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. I'd seen this book uh, a lot of times at bookstores and things. And I don't know, I didn't know how I felt about it. I was kind of a again another judge. It's a book by its cover. It seemed interesting, but I never bought it. But I did obviously buy it now that I have it a few months ago. Um, and wanted to check it out. Habits are really important. We are creatures of habit, not just creatures of habit. We are creatures of prediction. We constantly are predicting our world. And so one ways that one of the ways that habits work is that once we get used to doing something, our Brain, body gets prepared to do those habits once we make it a habit. So, uh, interested to hear what James Clear has to say in this book, Atomic Habits. Again, next Monday at 1 p.m., you can join the book club, but then in my show, 8 p.m., I'll be discussing that book then. All right, let's get to the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight, Why We Are Polarized by Ezra Klein. And this was a book that I'd heard about last year, but then bought it recently, and I'm, I really enjoyed it. So Why We're Polarized, Ezra Klein, he is a journalist, a political journalist. He also, um, he's the current editor at large and co-founder of Vox, V-O-X. Maybe you've heard of that um, media source. is very good, actually. I enjoy a lot of their work. And, and so in this book, Why We're Polarized, he looks at the current state of American politics and global in a way, but really focuses almost exclusively on American politics and why we are so polarized. Why are we so far apart on almost all issues? Why do we dislike each other in this us and them, especially when you look at Republicans and Democrats? Why do we have this type of state of affairs? How did we get here? And so, he does a good job of looking at the history of American politics, which for me there was a lot of eye-opening things that I didn't know about, so I enjoyed that. And then trying to get to how we got to where we are, Um, and then I'll get to the end of the book, uh, different things that he discusses there as well. But for me, it was an interesting read to learn about American politics or the political history, things that I was not aware of, of, um, and I'll share some of that with you. So, as he starts the book off what didn't happen but it's looking at the election of Donald Trump. So this book came out pre-pandemic because you can tell by the the language. I've had uh you know the the opportunity to read some books that have been written during the pandemic and you almost always have them talk about it in there. It's clear he, I think this came out February actually of 2020 right before the pandemic. But so um Hillary Clinton wrote a book what happened about what ha- how she thinks, you know, or she couldn't believe what happened, but he's saying that if we look at the election of Donald Trump, and of course there are books and so much uh, commentary on what happened there, um, one of the things that is actually interesting is that even though he was elected, he didn't win the popular vote, but he got about as many votes as all, all the other candidates. So. He what he was saying is that there's some people that argue, of course, this was such an aberration. We can't believe this happened. But he talked to some political scientists who was saying, really, this election wasn't that different than the past elections. Um, yes, people were surprised for many people that someone like Donald Trump, who people had known in the media and in, in so many years was elected president. But in some ways, we can also say this points to the fact that we are so polarized, the the Republicans and the Democrats, that pretty much anyone either Side picks will have a pretty good chance of winning um, just right off the bat. So, you know, you can just pick your whoever you know that's a Republican and put them on the ticket, and whoever's a Democrat. And people, it's not so much that actually they want their team to win, that's a lot. But a lot of what we also see in American politics right now, I mean, you see it often used as a tactic, but it's this fear tactic that the other side is so bad and evil and wants to destroy this country essentially that you can't let them win. So really the state of affairs right now of politics in the United States is it's so us versus them and it's basically win at any cost because the other side is evil, stupid, immoral, fill in the blank with a really negative harsh word and we can't let them win. So. He, he starts off with that kind of an anecdote or that aspect of history that although many people were surprised by the 2016 presidential election, in some ways it wasn't that surprising given the state of affairs, and it was much like what the recent elections have been for the president. And so in the beginning of the book, he describes Democrats and uh, liberals, Republicans and conservative, and now we think of those words as interchangeable. All liberals are Democrats, all conservatives are Republicans. But he discusses how in the 20th century, in the 1900s, it wasn't always that way. And that was surprising for me because in my lifetime, and especially more recently, those words are so synonymous that if you're liberal, you're a Democrat, if you're conservative, you're a Republican, it was interesting and very uh, surprising to learn that that wasn't always the case that the republican parties and democratic party of the mid 19th uh, mid 20th century was not so polarized the way it is now and there were some people who were democrats who might have been more conservative than some republicans uh, and vice versa and especially on certain issues not only that right now if you know who someone voted for president let's say if it's a presidential election you almost know for sure who they voted for uh, for let's say senate or the house of representatives it's almost always the same party but back then that wasn't the case people would sometimes. Vote for, it was common to vote for someone for president who, let's say, was a Republican, and then to vote for a Democrat for your governor or your Senate or something like that. So that was an interesting um, point for me to see. And even the politicians themselves were not that different in a lot of ways. And what I didn't actually get, I was waiting for him to explain what made people Republicans and Democrats if it were, wasn't for the fact of um, being liberal versus conservative. There were some things that came up, but I didn't get a, a clear understanding of that. Maybe something I can look into myself, or maybe I missed it if he explained it in the book in a way I didn't get. But nonetheless, we have this, uh, this interesting setup compared to what we see now, that it wasn't so split in this red-blue type of black and white distinction, uh, there was much more uh, heterogeneity. The groups were much more similar in a way, or within the groups, there was more diversity. Um, And so that was really interesting for me to see that. And so, you know, he says this seems like some golden era, but he does explain that not all of it was good. One of the reasons actually why we had this type of a, a spread of ideas where it wasn't just liberal meant Democrat and Conservative meant um, Republican. He talks about the Dixiecrats. So the Dixiecrats were uh, the Democratic Democrats of the South around the time of the, uh, you know, I guess it's all after the Civil War, but especially he describes in the mid 20th century. And so these Democrats, and this is again where because currently the Democratic Party is the party of anti-racism. It could be surprising for some people, but the Dixiecrats, the uh, Democrats of the South, were very pro-segregation, essentially very pro-maintaining white supremacy in the South. Um, They were against anti-lynching laws, against civil rights being um, passed and and voting, becoming easier for African-Americans. And so they were very, in that way, conservative, but they were still The Democrats. And also, part of it was that, again, sometimes a a twist in what we sometimes think of the Democratic Party being pro uh, African Americans. uh, Remember that it was the Republicans that were against slavery, and the Democrats were pro slavery in the South. So, some of it was in retaliation of that. The Democrats of the South were still uh, against the Republicans and against moving forward in racial unity and for the rights of african americans and so we saw this interesting uh interesting politically but very sad state of affairs where the southern democrats actually held a lot of power they really had almost a one-party rule i think at one point he said 95 percent of the um government seats in the south were held by democrats and they maintain a certain way of things being that was uh, very much not okay as far as uh, how the treatment of blacks were and how um people were uh, ...living their lives as far as, again, the white white supremacy was very prevalent there. And so things were not so good, as he says. It wasn't some golden era like everything was good. These compromises that were being made between Republicans and Democrats partially were because the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats, held so much power... Um, and they used it as a bargaining chip in how things were done. So yes, in some ways there was less polarization to a degree, but it's also built on something quite ugly, which is not very good at all. And so that was interesting for me to see this you know, type of um, dichotomy or lack of dichotomy in a way of what was going on. And when we get to the civil rights movement and civil rights act being passed, This is also an interesting thing. I didn't know more Republicans voted for it than Democrats because of the Southern Democrats who were so against it. And so this actually, the passing of the civil rights laws and and things changing in this way was one of the key points of changing um, liberals and becoming Democrats and conservatives becoming Republicans. A lot of these Southern Democrats became Republicans after the in this time period, the 60s, 70s, or maybe starting in the 50s, um, with civil rights becoming more of a movement in the United States. So that was interesting for me. Even you may be if you're familiar with American politics, Strom Thurmond, who's I always just knew him, he I, I think he died when I was I don't know if I was a teenager or in my 20s, but nonetheless, I remember seeing him as always a very anti-black, pro um, white, Senator, and he was in in office for a long time, but he actually originally was a Democrat. And so he was part of this Dixiecrat party or group, uh, but then became a Republican and definitely expressed a lot of what we think of as now the traditional, or at least I shouldn't say traditional always, but typical for now type of um, Republican party. So that was very interesting to learn this history of how we weren't always divided the way it seems so clear right now. Um, And so for me, that was interesting because I think it's important when we understand history. Of course, a big part of understanding history is to um, not repeat the mistakes of the past, which is very true. But also when we recognize that things are not always the way they were now or they are now, it tells us that not only were they not always the way they are now, but they can be different. And so I think in that there can be some hope. It wasn't good how it was, but we don't have to always be the way that we are today. Because the way we are today is a very unfortunate state of affairs where we are so polarized and people from the opposite ends of the political spectrum don't want to see eye to eye and are so against one another that they uh, really are... Not even trying to work together they would rather make sure they win and the other side loses and i'll continue the discussion on this book it was something uh, a book that i thought was very interesting and i wanted to talk a bit more about so i'll continue after the break the book is why we're polarized by ezra klein we'll be right back welcome back continuing the discussion on the book why we're polarized by ezra klein a great Description of the current state of affairs and how we got here in the United States. Uh, So then he also has a book, uh, sorry, a chapter titled Your Brain on Groups. And I thought it was going to actually have more neuroscience, a topic that I really enjoy, but it didn't really. But uh, it did talk about how easy it is for us human beings to... ourselves in groups and then to prefer our groups Um, so we know that we have a tendency for us versus them which we can understand it does make sense in some kind of an evolutionary way that we we are social animals and we need to rely on a group so it can make sense that we have a preference for what we feel is our group and even we can see uh, infants can have a preference for people of their ethnicity let's say compared to not so um it does seem to be something natural in us now does that mean we're naturally racist no but it does mean that we can have this this feeling of us and them and have a preference for that and us and them can change so in the the book he shares these studies where random for random reasons people get put in a group so they have to guess the number of dots on this graph or something and the people that are in a uh that made high estimates or grouped together in low estimates, and then they're giving money to each other in this kind of a game. And people prefer people in their group. And it's not just that they prefer giving to their group, but they want to make sure their group is doing better than the other group. So we don't even mind if we get less as long as we have more than whatever that them is. And that was interesting in some of the research that he shared. And to me, this could make sense because if you're competing, we we would like to think we don't look at the world in a zero sum way, but we can understand as biological creatures, we can have this sense of scarcity at times that there aren't enough resources. And so we can feel that as long as we're doing better than the them, we can out them and we're going to be okay so it's interesting that we see it's not just about well i like my team my group i want good for them it's that we want to make sure we're better off than the other group so even if both groups can have more at times and the research will see that people prefer well i'd rather give them less and we have a little bit more than them than we both have even more than that so um it was an interesting chapter looking at different research and things about how we are very much focused on who's in our group and who's not in our group. You know, from sports teams even talked about that's something that I'm pretty passionate about before uh, the show right before we came on the air Amir and I who's in the studio we were talking about soccer as we often do about teams even you know it's interesting I hope he doesn't mind me saying we were talking about which teams you like there's a game tomorrow and Chelsea is a team from in, that plays in England uh, from London and he said he doesn't like them because they wear blue and he che- he cheers for Paris police versus Esteglal which wears blue did I say that right Amir John? yeah so he uh, you know he He still doesn't like them because he associates that blue with the team he doesn't like. He's actually wearing a red shirt right now. You can't see him, but he's wearing a red shirt uh, representing probably his team colors. But so we see that we get into these um, different types of teams and groups that become so that feel so deep that we can get triggered by different types of things. So the chapter on groups was important to try to understand from a human psychology perspective how much we. Are drawn towards uh, groups. How much we want to be in a group, and we prefer our group. Even interestingly, looking at our how social we are, he he mentioned this study or research that has looked at people who are lonely in whatever cultures around the world, that they actually do something called micro awakenings, meaning they wake up during sleep. Not in a way you're going to remember when you woke up in the morning, but you're more likely to have these micro awakenings. And the understanding could be that if you're sleeping alone, if you're feeling lonely, you know that even when you're asleep, you have to be more aware of your surroundings. Whereas when you're in a group, you probably feel safer that others will wake up, let's say if there's a predator or if there's some issue that you need to wake up for. But if you're alone, you are more likely to wake up in the middle of the night, even if you don't realize it, or maybe your sleep won't be as deep because you have to be aware of your surroundings to take care of yourself. So we are human beings who are social animals. We need others we need to be around others we want to be included we want to make sure our group is okay and so all of this can contribute to what happens in politics in creating uh, polarization where when we get more and more entrenched in our team we can be even more committed to making sure they're okay and less concerned with what happens to the other group. They become uh, a them. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, Another chapter is called The Press Secretary in Your Mind. And this was an interesting, you know, title. Uh, Another way this is sometimes explained, I think Jonathan Haidt, I've heard him use it, say it's like a lawyer. But the way we make political decisions and even moral decisions, we all like to think I'm this very rational human being i use my critical thinking to come to a decision about what makes sense on a political concept or you know issue and then that's how i get to my political belief but when we actually look at research that gives us an understanding of what really is going on we see that it's much more of an emotional reaction and judgment that we make so someone says gay marriage and you have a feeling about it and then the ideas and the reasoning tends to come after the fact. We think of it the other way around. No, I might feel strongly about it, but that's because I thought about this issue and come to this conclusion. But really it's the other way around. You have this feeling, this reaction, And then you come up with reasons to defend it. That doesn't mean it doesn't, it can't change because it does. For a lot of people, if we look at, for example, gay marriage, uh, the percentage of Americans in support of gay marriage, even from 10 and definitely 20 years ago, has changed a lot here in the United States. The concept of gay marriage hasn't changed. People's feeling towards it has changed and a big part of that actually has been social because people are seeing that people are accepting it more they feel more okay with it and that changes but we have to recognize that you know when i talk about these types of issues i think a lot of people hear and they say oh yeah i see people do that all the time i see people who you know they make an emotional decision about political issues but i don't but the truth is we have to look at it and say i do too me fatty who is talking to you i do this as well i have emotional reactions to things. I have biases to certain issues, some of which I'm aware of, but some I definitely I'm sure I am not. And that's a big part of how I'm going to make or at least initially think about political issues and moral issues. So when I say that, I really hope you don't just think of everyone else. Again, this is one of those other kind of things where, oh, yeah, other people do that, but I don't. But we're all doing this and we have to recognize that as much as we want it not to be true because we want to give ourselves the credit of being so rational and not emotional uh, but emotions are a big part of how we think about the world and how well it makes sense we feel about the world right so um that was interesting with being a press secretary it's like how are you because you're saying it's kind of like the press secretary doesn't get to make the decisions but has to defend whatever decisions the president is making uh, similarly we have this way of dealing with things in our brains, essentially, that we feel something and then we come up for the reasons why this is our position on that issue. So that was also interesting. Now, another big aspect of all of this is identity. And that comes up a lot throughout the book. And so our identity can be lots of things, obviously. So I can think I'm a male, I'm Iranian, I'm a psychologist. Uh, Since we talked about soccer, I'm a Barcelona fan. I can be all sorts of different things that are are part of my identity. And of course, but different things might mean more more to me. So some people might say being Iranian is such an important part of their identity. And so of course, if that gets threatened in some way, they're gonna react strongly. For some people, their political party might be a big part of that. I am a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and so anyone who's against my team, I'm gonna respond quickly to that threat to my identity. And when we look at identity, people might think, well, okay, you're Republican, you're Democrat, who cares if someone attacks That because it's part of your identity, we don't just feel like they're attacking some ideas or beliefs or thoughts we have on taxes or different things. We feel like they're attacking us. And I've shared this study that I think was in the book, You're Not Listening. That's kind of funny. Uh, Maybe I was not listening when I was reading the book, but I think that in that book, it was the study that looked at the brains of people who have strong political beliefs and they attacked those political beliefs, or they challenged I should probably say, I don't remember exactly how, those political beliefs. And when they looked at their brains, the way the authors put it to I think make it seem more interesting, but they said it looked like they were getting attacked by a bear. And that seems surprising. But to me, it made sense when you think about if someone is attacking your identity in a way, it's attacking your sense of self. So in that way, it's attacking yourself. It is like you're under threat and you need to protect yourself or either run away or do something. But it makes you feel like you're under attack. And so this is a big part when we look at politics now identity politics is usually this term that's sometimes used in a derogatory or negative way to say we're focusing too much on things like race or um you know being a member of the lgbtq community or women's issues or different types of immigration and or people who are immigrants let's say and it's like when we're using these labels in politics people sometimes say that's identity politics. But what I think is important is not just that type of identity politics, but to look at how much you identify with your politics. Because one of the things we want to be aware of is when we look at how much we feel like we're part of a group um, or how much our identity is being challenged or questioned, it depends on how much we are connected to that part or we identify with that part of our identity. Because you might say, okay, I'm Iranian, but I haven't been there, let's say, so you might not care if someone says something negative about Iran, whereas someone else who being Iranian is so passionate and important for them, someone says something about Iran, they might react strongly. And I'm not saying that's necessarily right or wrong. But when it comes to politics, I do think we can think about how much we connect or make it important that this is our identity even saying to me saying you're a republican or a democrat making that kind of declaration makes it so it's different than here are some of the values i agree with or i tend to agree with the republicans on these issues or i tend to agree with the democratic platform on these issues i think that's actually a better place to be than to so much identify with one party or one type of a label because you're more likely to feel under threat when that's the case rather than someone says hey this is just you know you know what I believe. So if you're someone that's I am such a you know liberal that this is how I feel about this, someone says anything against that, it's going to make you get very upset, but I don't think that has to be the case. Now, related to this identity, he also talks about the very important role the media has played in uh contributing and creating some of the polarization that we see or experience in the united states so not even that long ago 30 years ago there weren't that many ways to get your news. There were a few news channels, even actually if you go maybe 30 years ago, there weren't really even national news channels, maybe CNN or one or two other ones. Then there was the local news and maybe some national news like ABC, CBS, but there weren't that many sources and then some newspapers. And so this affected the ways that people got their information. They tended to be more in the center they tended to be more balanced, and uh, they tended to try to be for everyone. But that has changed. Now the news is much more your choice. So we choose the news we want to hear, And so that already means we're picking news that already agrees with us. Then the news wants to be appealing to us. So they give us back what we want and it creates this feedback loop. So you're more conservative, you wanna hear conservative news that talks about how bad the liberals are and that makes you even more mad at the liberals and even more conservative. And so it creates this kind of runaway effect where it gets more and more polarized. And that's what we see in the media today, that there are, it's hard to find some central ways of getting the news that are more balanced it, it tends to be very extreme because people, you know, we, we ask for what we want and then the media give create something. And again, this feedback loop unfortunately reinforces itself to become more and more polarized. Not only that, he made an interesting point in the book that I hadn't thought about, which was that before um, generation, not even that far, maybe a couple generations ago, people cared more about local politics and less about national politics or they cared but they they focus a lot on the local politics but also with the news where it had to become something national that could appeal to people across the country the focus has been more on national figures and national issues rather than local issues Even though, as he points out, local issues are much more likely to affect you than the national issues. Um, Who even becomes president does have an effect on you, but it's probably going to be minimal depending on who you are. It's going to have probably much less of an effect than what your city council is going to do and what your local government is going to do. But I can even speak for myself, I don't know almost anything about my local city council. I'm not sure if I even know the representative for Congress in my district. I probably should, but I actually don't. But I know about random senators in other states and, of course, the president and those types of things. We know those things very well, but we know very little about our local government. But actually, we maybe want to change that. That's one of the recommendations he makes at the end of the book, is to think more about your local government because you can have, first of all, also a bigger impact there. It's less people. You can communicate with them more directly and more easily. And the decisions they're making will directly affect you but it's interesting that because the media ha- has sold us something to make it more exciting we focus more on our national politics and we've almost forgotten about local politics and that itself is a problem and that's something else that he mentioned uh, also about the media things like conflict sells uh things like anger cells so rather than just giving you some information they try to give you these intense sound bites about how crazy the other side is and look at what they said and so what you'll see is that the conservative media will find the the liberal people that they hate the most and put them on and vice versa the liberal media will find the conservatives that they think are saying something crazy rather than the people that actually might even be more important because they're just trying to get our attention and i think this is also a negative thing about media in general, because things like anger and outrage sell, there's much more of that in the media. Or even if you go on YouTube, rather than trying to learn about an issue, you'll see, you know, so-and-so destroys liberal student, blah, blah, blah. Or so-and-so destroys conservative activists, something, something, something. And it's about destroying and who's going to make the other side look stupid. And even these videos, I think, are quite interesting. People will find a video of someone defending what they think and they'll have some big intellectual person and they're challenged by some you know, student or someone and of course the intellectual wins and it looks like well the intellectual it's not just the intellectual was smarter their idea is better and now you're better and look how stupid the other side is and people love to watch these kinds of things so that's something you'll see on YouTube for example. Now we're at another commercial break I might continue a bit more about the book because I really did enjoy it and think I had a lot of Good point. Um, So we'll come after the break again. The book is Why We Are Polarized by Ezra Klein. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion on the book, Why We Are Polarized by Ezra Klein. Really enjoyed the book. And I was talking about media in the last um, segment. And media and social media have almost become part of the same, I don't want to say same coin, but they're really a lot, one and the same in the sense that for a lot of people, they get their news from social media, from the things that people post, but also from people who are on social media. Right now, I'm on Instagram Live, not necessarily giving you the news, um, but talking about politics, I guess, in a way. But So people get their information from Uh, Social media. And we know that social media is not just giving us information. It, It used to, I think anyone who's been on social media long enough on Facebook, you'd get a lot of different things. But as the algorithms have gotten more advanced and sophisticated, they more and more give you what they see you already like and you want to hear, which we can understand in general. We'd say, well, isn't it good for? a product to give you what you want that makes sense but the problem is what's happening with information is that on social media people are being reinforced and only being exposed to the information that they already agree with and that they like and so it's making us feel more and more like we know the truth and we get some version and curated version of the truth that we like and we can't believe someone would think something different from us and that's what we see happening now unfortunately when you talk to people who are on opposite sides of the political aisle or spectrum they can't believe the other side thinks what they think Uh, and not only do they disagree with them they think they are immoral they think they are bad people they think they are crazy they don't know what they're talking about and part of that is because the information we're getting is half of the story or not even half of the story but a specific version it's like if you haven't met one of my friends and then either I can tell you let's say all the worst things he's ever done or the bad things about him and repeat that for let's say a month so every oh he did this did I tell you about the time you oh, he's such a bad or if I tell you for a month all the good things he's done in his life and the good qualities about him well of course when you meet him you're going to already have an opinion about him and in one side if you then meet someone that says I like that guy if you got the bad information you're going to be like How could you possibly like this guy? He did this, this, and this, and this. But if you got the good information, like, of course, I like that guy too. He is someone, you know, who did this good thing. He's like this, he's like that. So we have to be aware that when we're unfortunately talking to one another, we are really living in two different worlds now, which is heartbreaking because we can't even communicate and connect, but it is a reality that you have to accept. And again, not just think, oh, they're so biased and they're getting a biased opinion, but think, how am I getting a biased opinion because of what I'm exposing myself to? And the very difficult thing to do, which is what we need to do, is to expose ourselves with things we don't agree with expose yourself to whatever the quote-unquote other side is at least a bit because if you don't do any of that you're gonna feel more and more insulated in thinking the way that you do and be open to it that's the other part because actually he does talk about there's sometimes research that If you get exposed to something that goes against what you say, you actually become more polarized. You feel again, going back to what I was talking about before, under attack. And so you get even more strong on your side. And something I talked about in the book club meeting today a few times that I also think is important to add here is maintaining a level of intellectual humility, meaning that we have to recognize we don't know if we're right. You could have an opinion on something, you could have thoughts on something and even you've researched it, quote unquote researched it, which we know can mean lots of different things to lots of different people, but you don't know if you're right. And this is something that still I've brought it up many times recently, and I continue to want to do that because I think it's almost funny the way that you'll see people, and I'm sure I've been guilty of it too, but we'll talk about an issue like we know the truth. This is how you solve homelessness in LA, or we need to do this, or this kind of taxes is going to ruin the country or is going to save the country. and people who are experts in those fields don't even feel that confident about these issues. Someone who's written a dissertation on whatever it is that you're talking about in your social media post, they might, in their conclusions of their dissertation, not say anything that's as conclusive as what you're saying on your social media post. So we do have to be a little bit more humble. And again, this is another part that unfortunately things like outrage, being extreme, being angry, those things sell much better than being measured and balanced. So if you say, this is what I think about this issue, here are some of my thoughts, what do you think? People don't really care about that. But if you say, the idiot da-da-da-da-das are doing this and they're gonna ruin the country, you're gonna get more you know likes and retweets and follows and all those types of things. It's one of those things where unfortunately, I think the market is not helping. The market can be good in lots of ways. I'll leave that aside for now but this is the problem when we are just promoting the wrong types of things controversy sells so if you tell someone or being mean sells if someone you know actually this reminds me of very off topic but one of the things i didn't like about reality tv and definitely quote unquote reality tv because it tends to be very scripted but if you look at some of these shows and i won't even name them but the people who are the most outrageously mean tend to become the most famous. The one who maybe hit someone, slapped someone, threw a drink in their face or did crazy things. Maybe I'm kind of giving away what types of shows I'm talking about. But those are the ones that would become more famous. If you were a kind and normal person, most of the time you wouldn't get a lot of attention. People maybe said you were nice, but they weren't the people that were getting the most attention. So unfortunately, media and social media and things like reality TV, I think they've reinforced some of these negative qualities of being human and made them, because they're more interesting, they make people more excited in the moment. Those have become the ways to communicate. You shouldn't just say this is what you think. You should say it while also insulting the other side. And it's really not the best way to communicate but it's become the way to communicate and everyone's doing it from both sides so i don't think one side is definitely has a monopoly on this but it's become the way that you share your opinion you don't just say this is what i think you say how could anyone think anything different the other side is immoral crazy stupid how could you even think that way and of course when we have that type of a mindset we of course are not going to be able to have discourse there won't be any discourse or communication when you think the other side is crazy and stupid. And so that's what we we see in the United States today. And in this book, Why We're Polarized, Ezra Klein does show us again the ways that this has happened to the point where there's a chapter called When Bipartisanship Becomes Irrational. And that thought, thought was very interesting. But... He talks about when we've created these types of teams that are so against each other, that are so extremely opposed to one another, then working together almost becomes irrational. And he cites when um, President Obama was going to fill the seat in the Supreme Court that was to fill Antonin Scalia's seat with Merrick Garland. And Mitch McConnell said, well, it's an election year and basically coming up with excuses, saying we're not going to even do a hearing. We're not voting. We have to let the quote unquote, let the American people decide. And then, you know, the new president will choose a Supreme Court justice. And everyone was saying how wrong he was. I really think it was not the fair thing to do. But Ezra Klein in the book was saying he didn't like it either. But doesn't it make sense what he's doing? Wouldn't his party have been so against him if he gave the Democrats what they wanted or made the Supreme Court have now a slim but democratic or liberal edge five to four. So it almost makes sense to play by those types of rules when things get this polarized, which is really disheartening that we i have gotten to the point where working together is against your own interests, which is kind of crazy. And that's what we see happening with the uh, Senate and House of Representatives, they don't do a whole lot as far as passing things because when one group is in power, so to speak, especially let's say the president is Republican or Democrat, the other side doesn't want to let them get things done. So they try to stand in their way. Even we've seen this happen recently, even if it's standing in the way of Americans getting benefits in different types of ways or helping or making things happen, they'd rather stand in the way than let those things happen because it's not about what's the best thing to do. It becomes about your team. And so since I talked about sports, I think it can be exhilarating. And there's a lot of things about team membership that feels good. And I talked about early in the book that we have a need to feel like we're in a team or a group. We like that feeling, but I think it can be important to try as much as you can. This is a very cliche type of advice to think for yourself, but really to recognize that's a lot harder than it sounds. We all think we think for ourselves, but we are of course highly affected by what people around us think. And then unfortunately, when we th- feel we're part of a team, we almost lose the ability to think for ourselves or we're almost learning that we shouldn't think for ourselves. And this is unfortunately another byproduct of the type of extreme polarization we have now, that it's not just about you have some policies or ideas that agree with this side or that side you have to agree 100 with that side or that side don't give them an inch so you can't disagree about it with us on anything and the other side feels the same way so if you're a democrat or if you have some liberal biases or something you have to think the same way on everything from abortion to gun control to immigration you can't have a different type of thought and even Someone in the book club today was talking about this theme, and I've experienced it too. Let's say you agree with someone, but you want to look at the nuance or the gray area and you see how quickly they react. No, no, no. What do you mean? No, it's this, it has to be this way. And it's just this extreme view that if you even try to move away from it one inch, you are looked at. You're moving towards the enemy. It's not that you're moving towards something more balanced. You're moving away from us and towards them. So you're actually an enemy. Maybe you're even kind of like a Trojan horse trying to be part of us, but you're trying to actually hurt us. So I think this is a very unfortunate thing and something that we should try our best individually. We can't change a whole system ourselves overnight, of course not, but we can try to make sure we're mindful of how we approach things. And one of the pieces of advice he gave was to be more mindful of our identity and our political identity, which I think is good advice. Um, he ends the last chapter by saying he doesn't like last chapters because usually in these types of books, and I agree with him, the author will talk about some super complicated, intense problem, and in the last chapter try to solve it you know, in like 15, 20 pages. And he doesn't do that. He says he he's more, I think, he said something like more confident in his prescription. Uh, in his description than his prescription, but he does give some ideas, but one of them is being mindful of our identity. It's going to get triggered. You're going to feel things. And even for me, more self-awareness of, okay, why do I think this way about taxes or about guns or this? And don't just think it's because it's right. Try to look a little bit deeper into yourself of what might be some of my biases. Every human being is biased. Um, and it's funny, I think sometimes people think not knowing their bias means they're unbiased because some people say, oh, no, I have no bias about this. All that tells me is they don't They don't know their bias about what's going on. So we have to be mindful of ourselves say, look, I'm, I'm going to be biased. I know that as a human being, that's inevitable. Let me try to understand it. And so I think when we take some of that pressure off that... We don't just think purely logically there is a lot of feeling involved when it comes to political moral social issues it gives us the space to be able to look at it and be okay with you know what maybe i'm wrong about this or maybe i have a particular bias in this direction and let me try to see even where that's coming from because we know that if we have a bias when we look at new information we don't look at it just as information, we look at it through the lens of that bias. Even uh, he shared some research in the book where when people are told, okay, here's let's say a climate scientist talking about, you know, Uh, global warming, if the scientist was in favor of what they already believed, they labeled them an expert. But when they were against what they believed, they were kind of, uh, maybe they're not an expert, even though the credentials were the same. So again, interesting, another way that we're biased. Um, But it's just having that space to recognize, you know what, I'm biased because I'm a human being. Let me try to understand my biases rather than Hold on to this fake truth that I know the truth and everything I believe is going to be true or right, because that's not the case. And also because their feelings, they also tend to change over time. People, as they age, a lot of times their political beliefs might change uh, as they understand different things. But it usually takes time. It's not just the information instantly changes your mind. But as you go through life, you might start to change the way you feel about something. I'm sure each and every one of us can reflect on some political topic or social issue that 10, 20 years ago, you looked at differently than you do now. So these things tend to be slow in that way. But when we look at this theme of being polarized, which what the book was about, I hope each person can be a little bit more mindful, as he suggested at the end of the book, to understand themselves when it comes to these things. Try to be more self-aware And try to, as much as you can, not contribute to the problem of polarization, but be more open and understanding of yourself and open and understanding of others as well. So we can actually have the conversations that might lead to coming together rather than coming apart. All right. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.